You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Wickedness. Electronically bugged. I was just following my Violent ambition. Danger. 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 Danger is clear. We're the terrorists. But the world has witnessed the last months. We have some of the most painful weapons ever devised. We're the terrorists. Danger is clear. Reckless aggression. Attack the innocent. Aggression. Aggression. And bad faith. Dollars come before me. Aggression. Aggression. And bad faith. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 25th day of April, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to the Corbett Report podcast and invite them, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ClimateGate.tv, and ReportageBook.com as well as those sites that help to broadcast, podcast, syndicate, and otherwise get the word out about this podcast, including ZeroPointRadio.com, TragedyAndHope.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, OneSkyRadio.com, and Archive.org. At the end of last week's episode, I announced that I would be releasing a special video message on Monday the 19th of April, which I did do, and I did ask for the listeners' help in getting the word out about that video, and it has so far been viewed in excess of 20,000 times, so I would like to thank all of those who helped to spread the word about that video, as I think it was an important message, and it seems to have gotten out in a big way. So once again, thank you to all the remarkable listeners out there who continue to support this podcast, and as always, the best way you can support what I'm doing is to join me and to help either spread the word about articles and videos that you find effective or to create your own. And by all means, please send links to your own work and I'll be happy to take a look. And on that note, of course, at times like this when the website is experiencing a lot of traffic, I do get a lot of emails and phone calls, uh, feedback to the website. And unfortunately, I simply do not humanly have the time to respond to all of the feedback that I get. But rest assured, I do try to read and listen to all the feedback that comes in, and I do very much appreciate all of the ideas and links and things that people send me. So please continue to do so, but please do not be discouraged if I don't have the time to respond. On that note, I'd like to thank all the people who continue to donate to the website through the PayPal button and announce that the we are pretty much out of the 2020 Hindsight DVDs, so that promotion will be stopping as of now. But uh, thank you to all of the people who helped make that promotion such a success. And once again, a big, giant thank you to Richard Andrew Grove of TragedyAndHope.com and Paul Verge of Divergent Films, uh, who helped to make this possible by making the film and then donating those DVDs so that we could use it in this promotion. Thank you so much, so much for the the help. And it has been an incredible help, and we have raised a, a lot of funds through that effort. So thank you very much for that. And I'd also like to put out a special thank you to one listener in the United States who gave the most generous donation in the history of this website this week and who has single-handedly enabled me to buy some of the things that I very much desperately need on the back end, including a new audio mixer and uh, probably two new external hard drives and a significant amount of the money needed for a new laptop. So thank you very much to that one listener with that extremely generous donation. And on that note, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so why don't we get straight into it? Let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Welcome to your Sunday update for this 25th day of April 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, ex-counterterrorism chief Richard Clark has begun a tour of media outlets in the U.S. hyping cyber war hysteria. The spate of media appearances are part of a promotional tour for his new book, Cyber War, The Next Threat to National Security and What to Do About It. 
In a recent appearance on the Rachel Maddow show, Clark regurgitated many of his talking points. We know that countries can get inside the control systems for the things you mentioned, the electric power grid. So they turn off the lights? No, they don't just turn off the lights. They cause a generator to explode. That's hard to replace. It keeps the electric power grid down for a long time. They could cause trains to derail. So the United States government has created these military commands, the 10th Fleet, which has no ships, the 24th Air Force, which has no planes, U.S. Cyber Command, to do this sort of thing. China's created military commands, Russia's created military commands. In a masterful critique of Clark's over-sensationalized claims, Ryan Single of Wired Magazine details the numerous factually incorrect statements and claims in the book. Quoting from Single's article, quote, Like most cyberwar pundits, Clark puts a shine on his fear-mongering by regurgitating long-ago debunked hacker horror stories. In his world, the slammer worm was partially responsible for the Northeast blackout of 2003. The Energy Department concluded otherwise. A power outage in Brazil is similarly attributed to a hacker when the real-life evidence points to sooty insulators. Clark describes the Russian denial-of-service attacks against Estonian servers in 2007 as the largest ever seen. Not even close. He claims that foreign hackers stole the plans to the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter when they actually nabbed unclassified information on the plane's self-diagnostic system. Observers note that Clark's intentions are not to warn of Chinese or Russian attackers so much as to prepare the American public to expect attacks and to give up internet freedoms when those attacks take place. As Lawrence Lessig, Stanford University law professor, told a technology conference in 2008, then counterterrorism czar Clark once told him that there is an iPatriot Act on the shelf waiting to be rushed through Congress in the event of a cyber 9-11. The 30-second version of the Zitran story is um, there's going to be an I-911 event, which doesn't mean an Al-Qaeda event. What it means is uh, an event where the instability or the insecurity of the internet um, uh, becomes manifest, some major uh, uh, malicious uh, event, which then inspires the government into a response. If you remember, after 9-11, the government dropped the Patriot Act within about 20 days, and it was passed, and the Patriot Act's huge. I remember somebody asking um, uh, a Justice Department official, how did they write such a large statute so quickly? And of course the answer was, it's been sitting in the Georgia Justice Department for the last 20 years, waiting for the event that would allow them to drop it. And of course the Patriot Act is filled with all sorts of insanity about um, changing the way civil rights are not protected or protected in the United States. So I, I had dinner once, and Richard Clark was at the, at, this ta at the table, and I said to him, is there an equivalent? Is there a Patriot Act and an I-Patriot Act just sitting waiting for some substantial event for them to come in and have an excuse for radically changing uh, or radically changing the way the internet works. And he said, of course there is. And I, I, I swear, this is what he said, and quote, Vint Surf is not going to like it very much. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a big terror. Like, they're just sitting waiting for the inevitable to happen and then slam. As the Corbett Report has detailed in the past, the Cyber 9-11 meme has been trotted out regularly since 9-11 itself took place and is used to prepare the public for a spectacular false flag cyber terror or cyber warfare event that will eventually function exactly as the 9-11 false flag event did. Washington political commentator Webster Tarpley recently descri described the cyber false flag idea as virtual flag terrorism. I think you get into an issue which I would call virtual flag terrorism. In other words, false flag terrorism provocations take place, they're blamed on somebody. In the area of virtual flag terrorism, something happens, you can blame anything on anybody. If we have a crash in the DC metro, what to do? Blame a hacker in Russia, or China, or Sudan, and who in, who in the world is going to be able to say no? Interestingly, in the latest round of media appearances, Clark has also revealed some of the actual intentions of the government with regards to regulating the internet and the capabilities of the government for manipulating an increasingly virtual world from behind the electronic curtain. In an odd way, isn't this a repeat of the, the Cold War? We're talking about Russia and China as being engaged in some kind of war against the United States. It's odd, isn't it? But, uh, and I'm assuming the United States does something similar. We do with one big distinction. I think the United States probably hacks its way into everything in Russia and China, but we don't take corporate secrets 
and then turn around and give them to American companies. Now, some people don't believe that. I know there's a big conspiracy theory that the NSA actually is stealing information from Airbus and giving it to Boeing. That really doesn't happen. In other news this week, Washington, D.C.-based investigative reporter Jeffrey Scott Shapiro dropped a bombshell revelation about the 9-11 false flag event in an otherwise withering attack on former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. The collapse of World Trade Center Building 7 has been doggedly avoided in the mainstream media because the 47-story steel-framed office tower fell directly into its own footprint at 5.20 p.m. on that day, with, with even the government-appointed NIST having to admit that a significant portion of that collapse happened at freefall acceleration. This is problematic for the official conspiracy theory of 9-11 as the building was not hit by a plane and suffered less damage in the collapse of the Twin Towers than buildings that were closer to these towers and yet remained standing. It has long been known that Larry Silverstein, who profited to the tune of $4.5 billion in insurance payouts from the destruction of all three buildings, has admitted talking to the fire commanders about pulling the building, a term he claims referred to pulling firefighters out of the building rather than the demolition industry term for taking a building down through controlled demolition. Now, Mr. Shapiro has given further violation that Silverstein was speaking specifically about controlled demolition on that day. Writing on foxnews.com, Shapiro notes, quote, Shortly before the building collapsed, several NYPD officers and Con Edison workers told me that Larry Silverstein, the property developer of One World Financial Center, was on the phone with his insurance carrier to see if they would authorize the controlled demolition of the building since its foundation was already unstable and expected to fall. End quote. There is no indication how such a feat was going to be accomplished, as controlled demolitions of large office towers take weeks to set up and would be physically impossible to accomplish in a burning building in one day. The logical conclusion is that the charges were in fact already in place, and the order merely had to be given for the building to be taken down. All right, guys. We are walking back. There's a building about to blow up. All flame, debris coming down. Just in the last few seconds, another building, building number seven, one of the buildings uh, in support of the World Trade Center towers has collapsed. This is no small building as you can see at 47 stories it would stand out in most american cities the controlled corporate media has yet to pick up on this revelation finally this week the controlled demolition of greece continues apace as the greek government yields to the wishes of international finance capital and begins a series of crippling austerity measures in preparation for a bailout from the eu and the imf now the Greek people are once again taking to the streets to protest their government's moves to make them accountable for their government's own duplicity. Riot police clash with protesters in Greece as the country teeters on the brink of economic disaster. Greece's main public sector union brought nurses, teachers and other workers onto the streets of the capital, Athens. They're angry at government austerity measures introduced in a bid to cut the country's mountain of debt. Police fired tear gas at left-wing protesters as tempers boiled over. Greece owes 300 billion euros, and the possibility it could default on international loans has caused markets to falter across the eurozone. Now the country's asking its EU partners and the IMF for 45 billion euros. That's about 39 billion pounds. If the rescue package is agreed, it will be the biggest bailout of an entire country ever attempted. The current Greek crisis was brought about with help from Goldman Sachs, who helped to cook the books of the Greek government so that it could join the EU Monetary Union in the first place. Now, the troubles brought about by the Greek crisis threatened to destabilize the EU itself, with international predatory institutions like the IMF likely to be the largest beneficiaries. Now, stay tuned for episode 129 of The Corporate Report, Kalia and the Stellar Wind, where we talk to Rebecca Jeske of EFF.org and John Young of Cryptome.org about the broader history and institutional framework of illegal government surveillance of the U.S. population. Welcome, my friends, to episode 129 of The Corporate Report podcast, 
Kalia and the Stellar Wind. Now, for those of you who are watching this video right now on YouTube, you might notice something very interesting, namely that this podcast episode is very special insofar as it is being simultaneously made available on youtube.com slash Corbett Report as a video podcast, a vodcast. So for anyone who is listening to the audio of this podcast right now, by all means, please go to youtube.com slash Corbett Report and watch this report online. And for those who are watching this report on YouTube, uh, as always, as with the previous 128 episodes of this podcast, you can download the MP3 audio of what you're listening to right now from the homepage of the Corbett Report, corbettreport.com. Simply go to the homepage and click on the Episodes tab on the left side of the page, and you can find today's episode with a link to download the MP3 file. And of course, please check out the previous 128 episodes of this podcast if you have not yet done so, including a special edition of the podcast released yesterday, episode 128, the audio of Alex Jones's new documentary, Police State 4, The Rise of FEMA. Now, for those of you who are new to this podcast, I would suggest that you go to CorbettReport.com in order to at least to check out the documentation list for today's episode, which can also be found right next to the download mp3 link at CorbettReport.com. And I suggest you do so if you're interested in the documentation for what I'm about to speak about today, and you'll find a list of all of the documents, all of the videos, and all of the articles cited in today's episode of this podcast slash vodcast, sorted by time index. Now, today we're going to be talking about Kalia and the Stellar Wind, and that might be a rather enigmatic title. So to set the stage, I'd like the viewer or listener to cast your mind back to April of 2004, those heady days of yore before uh, the complete and utter charade of uh, the political system was exposed for all and sundry to see, and there was still an alarming amount of the public who actually believed what the paid politicians and liars and uh, people with their strings being pulled used to say regarding what they were doing in the hallowed halls of our government. And I say this because, of course, these days, trust in government has hit all-time lows, and we can confirm that by a study that just came out from Pew Research on, very recently, on April 18th, and incidentally and kind of humorously was reported extensively on April 19th of this year, 2010, very appropriately. And that poll shows that a stunning 22% of Americans actually trust what the government says. And that's uh, maybe 22% too high, but still it is moving and trending in the right direction. And another very interesting thing to note from that particular uh, poll is the graph that shows that, in fact, this distrust of government has reached an all-time low that really only seems to be mirrored in the 1990, in the mid-1990s, the figures that were being hit around the mid-1990s, right before a certain well-publicized false flag terror event sent those rates skyrocketing upwards as people rallied around the flag, as they always do in these types of false flag events. But uh, perhaps on a more humorous note, my personal favorite poll in that regard came out, in fact, uh, a little bit earlier than this one. In January of this year, 2010, Rasmussen reported that 45% of Americans say that they uh, would rather have random people from the phone book in government than the current Congress members. Again, very interesting and telling sign. But in 2004, perhaps the distrust of government had not reached quite those heights. And so when the commander-in-chief, the, the decider, got on stage and told people in April of 2004 what the government was not doing in the war on terror, an alarming number of people were inclined to believe him. So the first thing I want you to think about is when you hear Patriot Act, is that we changed the law and bureaucratic mindset to allow for the sharing of information. It's vital, and others will describe what that means. Uh, secondly, uh, there are such things as roving wiretaps. Now, by the way, anytime you hear the United States government talking about wiretap, it requires, a wiretap requires a court order. 
Nothing has changed, by the way. When we're talking about chasing down terrorists, we're talking about getting a court order before we do so. It's important for our fellow citizens to understand, when you think Patriot Act, constitutional guarantees are in place when it comes to doing what is necessary to protect our homeland because we value the Constitution. Now, while many people did believe the decider-in-chief when he made that bold proclamation that wiretaps required court orders, it very quickly turned out that he was lying through his teeth. And the first evidence that the public was given about this came on December 16th of 2005 in a New York Times article entitled, Bush Let's U.S. Spy on Callers Without Courts. This report was filed by James Risen and Eric Lichtblau, and it reads in part, quote, Months after the September 11th attacks, President Bush secretly authorized the National Security Agency to eavesdrop on Americans and others inside the United States to search for evidence of terrorist activity without the court-approved warrants ordinarily required for domestic spying, according to government officials. Under a presidential order signed in 2002, the intelligence agency has monitored the international telephone calls and international email messages of hundreds, perhaps thousands, of people inside the United States without warrants over the past three years in an effort to track possible dirty numbers linked to al-Qaeda, the official said. The agency, they said, still seeks warrants to monitor entirely domestic communications. End quote. Now, that article was quite blockbuster at the time because it revealed what was quite evident to anyone who knew about the case and the relevant laws was in fact an illegal program. The 1978 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act made it illegal for the government to warrantlessly wiretap wire anyone uh, with one side of the phone call or communication in the United States. And, of course, the FISA Act, as it's known, was written well before the advent of email, so it did not really envision those types of communications. So it was quite evident to many people, including uh, lawyers and other outraged citizens, that, in fact, this was an illegal program. And it did not take long for it to start causing quite a stir. And many hats were tipped and uh, people congratulated the New York Times for having revealed this story and they were congratulated uh, among their media peers because they had been so brave to do so and had even printed the article on the website the evening before they released it in their paper because there was the fear that the Bush administration was going to use an injunction to stop them from going to press, uh, something along the lines of the Pentagon Papers. But as laudable as it was that they actually did eventually publish the story, it seems that, in fact, they had ha been sitting on this story ever since 2004, in fact, not so long after Bush made his infamous proclamation. In 2008, Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! talked to one of the authors of the article, Eric Lichtblau. Eric Lichtblau has just come out with a new book. It's called Bush's Law, The Remaking of American Justice. The book's new disclosures include an account of fierce anxieties within the Bush administration on the program's legality when it began. Eric Lichtblau also reveals the inside story of the New York Times' own decision to delay publication of the story for more than a year after intense lobbying by the White House. Tell us how you stumbled on the NSA warrantless wiretapping story. Well, what I, what I lay out in the book is that uh, in, in the chapter that discusses the, the, the backstory, if you will, the story of how the New York Times came to publish the story, was that there was an intense nervousness over this program from the very beginning, literally from the first hours and days that it began in October 2001. There were people within the government, within the FBI, within the Justice Department, who were worried that the NSA was doing something illegal. Uh, remarkably, they kept a bottle on that uh, for uh, the better part of two and a half years. Uh, um, my partner and I, Jim Risen, simultaneously but separately began hearing some of these rumblings in, in 2004 through, through sources that we had. I covered mainly Justice Department issues, Jim co covered mainly intelligence and CIA issues. We both began hearing things in, in 2004. At the time, we only learned later, it was at the time that really there was this, this uh, revolt within, within the government that led to uh, the near resignations of, of uh, more than 20 people within the administration over this program. What 
were hearing was really the the, the steam blowing over on this program, um, and that led to to months of reporting uh, that uh, led to internal uh, in, internal strife within the paper over whether or not to publish this paper, uh, uh, whether whether or not to publish this story, and the paper. Um, initially decided uh, after really agonizing internal del deliberations um, that uh, because of the administration's insistence that this could harm national security it would not publish uh, the story. Now, it came back at that decision obviously uh, more than a year later in late 2005 and ultimately did d decide to publish the story. Explain what happened because this was not just any date um, when the New York Times uh, squelched the story in 2004. It was right well, before. You're, you're, the referring, you're referring to the, the November 04 election, I assume. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think that the timing was was more or less coincidental. But but yes, the the, the period around which we were, we were discussing this was October November 2004. Um, there was, as I, as I describe in the book, um, there was a, a draft of the story in hand um, with the outlines of the program as as we essentially know it today uh, in hand uh, and. The paper um, went over that draft, went to the administration, uh, discussed what we knew, um, heard out the White House uh, in, in great detail as to its objections, ultimately decided just before the election in November 4. That, as I say, the timing was somewhat coincidental. Uh, that that couldn't, be, uh, couldn't be removed from the debate entirely, but, but um, it was really a matter of happenstance that we happened to be debating this right before the election. Coincidental timing, well, I'll let you make of that what you will, but ultimately it amounts to more of the phony left-right squabbling over the absolutely discredited left-right political paradigm. So take it for what it's worth, which is really not that much, and what else would you expect coming from the foundation-funded Democracy Now! program? And uh, the New York Times obviously is also very much entrenched in that phony left-right political paradigm, so squabbling over whether this is Bush's law, as Eric Litblau terms it in his book, is uh, rather beside the point, because of course we now know from the perspective of 2010 that the program, although the government will not officially acknowledge whether or not it is still continuing, and if so, in what capacity. But uh, the Obama administration is fighting the legal challenges to this program as vociferously, in fact, even more so than the Bush regime did. But we'll come back to that in a moment. First, I wanted to get a little bit more into the history and the unfolding of the legal uh, battle for this pro against this program. And the program unfolded in a way that there are many twists and turns. It's difficult to follow all of the, the ins and outs of the cases that were brought in the wake of the revelation of this program because there were many different cases brought by many different people in different regards and capacities that had varying outcomes. And for people who are interested in tracking the various cases and arguments that have been made in this case. I think it would be uh, beneficial to use, why not, use Wikipedia as the starting point for your investigation. And when I say use Wikipedia, of course I don't really mean to read the text that has been written by who knows who and who knows what angle they're coming from, but at least use the, the sources cited there as a basis to begin researching this information. But of course, again, start doing the deep researching for yourself and, and don't trust any one source, including this source. Don't trust me. I'm just a talking head that you're looking at or listening to and am no more or less worthy of your belief than anyone else in the corporate media or any other type of media. So once you begin doing the research, I think one of the sources that you'll find quite invaluable of, for information on this is the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. They are one of the organizations that has been on this case since the beginning and have filed and helped in filing numerous lawsuits uh, regarding the illegal NSA wiretapping program. And uh, they have had some, some remarkable successes uh, that have come out of this program. So I would suggest you go to EFF.org where you can find all sorts of details about the various cases they filed and about the history of those cases and documents to go along with that. But in particular, you might want to take a look at this article which appeared on March 31st, 2010 court rejects government's executive power claims and rules that warrantless wiretapping violated law. Quote, 
Today, Chief Judge Vaughn Walker of the Federal District Court in San Francisco found that the government illegally wiretapped an Islamic charity's phone calls in 2004, granting summary judgment for the plaintiffs in Al-Haramain Islamic Foundation v. Obama. The court held the government liable for violating the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Today's order is the first decision since ACLU versus NCA v. NSA to hold that warrantless wiretapping by the National Security Agency was illegal. The decision in ACLU v. NSA was overturned on other grounds in 2007, and the focus of the government's litigation strategy since then has been to avoid having any court rule on the merits of the issue. End quote. Now, again, even this one case is quite complicated and has many nuances, so in order to find out more about this and about the other work that EFF has been doing, I recently had the chance to talk to EFF's media relations director, Rebecca Jeske. And we talked about this case in particular and also the broader significance of the NSA wiretapping case and what it means. So uh, tell us about this latest ruling and its significance and its the context of that case. Okay. Um, the, the, that case is, is the Al-Haramain case. Um, Al-Haramain Islamic Foundation was a, was a charity in Oregon um, that um, found out through a mistake, basically, um, that the government had been um, tapping its phones without a warrant. Um, what happened was during... Um, during some some legal proceedings, the government accidentally sent um, a confidential piece of information to Al Haramain, um, which which talked about this warrantless wiretapping. Now, no one is no one's allowed to talk about that piece of information. It gets it gets very confusing. People had to go and you know read about it in a secret you know in a in a protected chamber and leave the document there. And um, but the, this was one of the few organizations that had um you know proof that they had been that, that they had been been wiretapped proof from the government itself um this case um, was uh, part of was grouped with the same judge as as all the dozens of telecommunications cases. So they all sort of went worked through the courts together with the with the same judge. Um, but what happened um, last month is that the judge found that um, actually made a ruling that the government illegally wiretapped the charity and said that the government had to be held liable for violating the law. Well, yes, that's exactly right. So um, it, I, it, I just want to expand on the significance of that point that you raised, that this is one of the few, uh, comp- the, the few organizations that could actually prove it had been wiretapped. Why is that important for establishing their case? Um, the, the the way that the, the the justice system works here is that you 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 need to be able to prove that you had been harmed. Um, in our in our jewel case, the one that the judge ruled um, against several months ago, uh, he argued that um, that the case had to be thrown out because too many people were harmed and that there was no way to 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 um, to to have a, a, a to, that a case so big just simply couldn't make its way through the courts. Which is a tough reasoning, and when when why we're appealing that as well, um, but um, but th- this is a case where the 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 law is very clear. There's no um, there's no wiggling around by saying like, well, it, it couldn't be everybody, and how do you know they listen to your you know they listen to your conversations and not somebody else, or how do they know they read your email and not somebody else? This is just a very very clear example, and 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 the government the government still tried to get out of it, and the judge finally said, no, that's enough. It's it, this is as clear as it can be. Right. So um, this is the third time that a, a judge has ruled on the illegality of this program, and the other ones have been appealed by the Department of Justice. Uh, what do you expect will be the outcome of this ruling? Well, um, it, it very well may be appealed. Um, the The judge um, said that um, Al-Haramain, which is the charity, can voluntarily dismiss some of the some of the claims and get a final judgment um, or they can press some other claims um, and then it'll and then it'll keep going um, truthfully um, like all these other cases the government is is likely to appeal and then it will go to the Ninth Circuit um, and then um, probably ultimately to the Supreme Court Rebecca Jeske of EFF.org and for those people who still believe that this really is Bush's law and that the Al-Haramain case is something that really only applies to the Bush-era 
NSA. Of course it doesn't. Of course Obama said that he was going to be uh, different than the Bush regime on this case, but of course that too was a blatant and utter lie, as was proven shortly after he actually got into office. This administration also puts forward a false choice between the liberties we cherish and the security we provide. I will provide our intelligence and law enforcement agencies with the tools they need to track and take out the terrorists without undermining our Constitution and our freedom. That means no more illegal wiretapping of American citizens. No more national security letters to spy on citizens who are not suspected of a crime. No more tracking citizens who do nothing more than protest a misguided war. No more ignoring the law when it is inconvenient. That is not who we are. And it's not what is necessary to defeat the terrorists. The FISA court works. The separation of powers works. Our Constitution works. We will again set an example for the world that the law is not subject to the whims of stubborn rulers and that justice is not arbitrary. Our fifth story in the countdown, that was then, this is now, President Obama's Justice Department now not just defending Bush officials from lawsuits surrounding National Security Agency domestic spying, but seeking to expand the government's authority by making it immune from any legal challenge regarding wiretapping, ever. Welcome to change you cannot believe in or sue over the case. Jewel versus NSA. Five plaintiffs who contend that AT&T illegally transmitted information about their phone habits to the NSA. Attorney General Holder's Justice Department arguing a lot of things, including something called the state's secrets privilege, the executive branch's standard go-to move to protect classified information. But the real doozy, the Obama administration seeking to expand its authority, arguing that under something else called sovereign immunity, the government can only be sued if the wiretaps involve willful disclosure. Page 5, a willful violation in Section 223C1 refers to the willful disclosure of intelligence information by government agents. And such disclosures by the government are the only actions that create liability against the United States. In other words, unless the government publicly releases any information about you that it has gathered by spying on you, you cannot sue it. It gets better, and by better I mean worse. The Obama administration wants you to believe that it does not matter if the program is no longer operative, arguing that the same standard should apply for the first Bush terrorist surveillance program, the TSP. Page 15. Attempting to demonstrate that the TSP was not the content dragnet plaintiffs allege, or that the NSA has not otherwise engaged in alleged content dragnet, would require the disclosure of highly classified NSA intelligence sources and methods about the TSP, and other NSA activities, even confirming or denying already publicly confirmed facts, like the compliance of AT&T and other telecom giants, right down to the numbers of some of the rooms in which the information mining machinery was contained. That is apparently out of bounds. Page 16, the DNI again has demonstrated the disclosure of whether the NSA has an intelligence relationship with a private or particular private company would also cause exceptional harm to national security. The Obama administration. Surprise, surprise. Well, what needs to be said about that other than that, yes, the left and the right are two wings of the same bird of prey. But we already knew that, didn't we? So, moving right along, I think something that needs to be brought out at this point and something that is not often specifically talked about in regards to this program is the fact that the semantics are very important because we talk about the NSA wiretapping case as if the NSA is actually physically tapping people's lines. And even if they were doing so, that would be one level of illegality and something, of course, to be abhorred and resisted. But that isn't the case, of course. Tapping people's lines physically as if they, they are sneaking into the back room of uh, some telecommunications hub and, and tapping the wires. Of course, that's not how it works in this day and age. Of course, it's all done electronically. And as a whistleblower revealed shortly after the NSA program was blown wide open, this is in fact a deeply, deeply troubling issue and it is not by any means targeted at a few individuals. Your emails and my emails and everybody else's emails were evidently going to a government room. The issue... James Brosnahan is an attorney. 
He represents this man, Mark Klein. For 22 years, Klein worked as a technician for the largest telecommunications company in America, AT&T. Several years ago, Klein says he came to suspect that AT&T had installed secret computer gear designed to spy on Internet traffic at the request of the National Security Agency, or NSA. AT&T handles tens of millions of emails a day, not just for its own subscribers, but for other Internet companies, too. Upset by what he saw, Klein decided to blow the whistle. I've been struggling for some months now to bring it out into the light of day, and that's all really that I want to do, is bring it out there so that people can examine it and decide for themselves. And This press conference took place last spring. Afterwards, Klein dropped out of sight, but not before he had taken an extraordinary step. A few months earlier, he showed up unannounced at the offices of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Located in San Francisco, the foundation fights to protect people's privacy. Kevin Bankston is one of their lawyers. Based on Mr. Klein's statements, we have reason to believe that AT&T is assisting the NSA in collecting the communications uh, and communications records of all or practically all of its customers. Klein gave Bankston a treasure trove of documents to support that allegation. Bankston isn't allowed to talk about the documents in detail. The government has since had them sealed. But he says what is in there boggles the mind. Would you describe what's going on at the AT&T facility as limited and focused or vast and broad? We are talking about a substantial portion of all the communications traffic in the United States. As a result, Bankston and his group are suing AT&T for violating the privacy laws which govern the big telecommunications companies. Now has obtained copies of what are believed to be Klein's documents. In them, Klein describes the construction of a room in the AT&T building in which he worked, located in downtown San Francisco. He even took a picture. According to Klein, only employees cleared by the National Security Agency were allowed to enter. Several work orders instruct employees to split AT&T's transmission lines and feed them into the secret room. One of them shows they were interested in a facility called May West. May West handles internet traffic for most of the west coast of the United States. What we're talking about is the wholesale diversion of millions upon millions of communications uh, uh, from AT&T's backbone network. Now, just so I'm clear, are we talking about eavesdropping on only electronic communication, email and so forth, that's from the United States to a foreign country? No, that infrastructure actually sweeps in an enormous amount of domestic communications as well. The same switches that carry our international traffic carry our domestic traffic. At first blush, that might seem uh, a bit a bit crazy. Who could ever uh, manage to, to collect and, and perhaps even analyze that amount of data? But the fact is, that's exactly what the NSA has been doing for decades outside of the United States. And now, Bankston says, inside the United States as well. According to Mark Klein, the secret room at AT&T contains gear which enables the government to look at every individual message on the Internet and analyze exactly what people are doing. Here's another document. It mentions a company called Naris. Naris makes computer software that can swallow and analyze 10 gigabytes of information every second. That means it could go through all the information in all the books in the Library of Congress in a little over 15 minutes. The government has repeatedly denied that it's intercepting communications that are purely domestic. General Michael Hayden, the director of Central Intelligence, has said, This program isn't a drift net. This is focused. Kevin Bankston isn't buying it. But what exactly would the government be looking for? Bankston has a theory. The NSA has developed uh, automated computer systems that will scan those communications, whether voice or text, uh, for key bits of intelligence, key names or words uh, or phrases that are of interest to their analysts. It's important to keep in mind the significance of this information because the NSA is not wiretapping individual people. They are 
wholesale vacuuming up reams and rafts of data. In fact, all of the data passing through this telecommunications hub and who knows how many other telecommunications hubs around the US, all of that data, all of those emails, all of those phone calls and cell phones and all of that information being scooped up wholesale and fed through these Nor Naris computer pro uh, hardware that will actually data mine all of that information. Just incredible violations of people's privacy that's going on and it is reduced to the idea of wiretapping in the media but of course it's not that in fact in a very significant way we can say that the NSA is the telecommunications companies in a certain sense they are merged because all of the data that get the telecoms company is getting also the NSA is getting so that really needs to come out and we need to understand the larger institutional and, and uh, legal framework for this which was established at least as far back as 1994 with something known as the Calia Act. The Calia Act of course is the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act of 1994 and it federally mandated the that all communications uh, systems would have to have backdoors or easy access for programs exactly like the NSA wiretapping program. Uh, that is to say that the government would have to have an easy way of getting in and taking any and all of that data that they wish at any time uh, without really having to, uh, to physically go and do anything whatsoever. And uh, that was mandated back in 1994 and uh, in 2005 there was an update to the Kalia Act which uh, the uh, EFF has been fighting as uh, it has so many of these other issues uh, that would of course make all of the internet uh, voiceover internet protocol and all of the new forms of communication enabled by the internet also of course fall under the mandate of the Kalia Act. And it starts to paint a vast, broad picture of government spying. And of course we know it is warrantless spying. And it is quite illegal, but it undoubtedly still continues whether or not the government is going to admit that it's still continuing. And we have one tiny little victories in things like the Al Haramein case, but again, that will be appealed by the Obama DOJ and it will move to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and who knows, maybe eventually the Supreme Court and this process will take years. And in the meantime, the NSA will still be, so of course, scrambling up all of your data. But even as bad as all of that sounds, it's much, much worse because it's not just an isolated NSA program. It's not just one little thing that we're dealing with. It's something that moves across a number of departments in the US government. In fact, there are hundreds of programs that are aimed at t collecting and mining your personal data. And just one example of that was the absolutely Orwellian Total Information Awareness Office. But the FBI is hardly alone in mining the mountains of commercial data now available. The Government Accounting Office found 199 data mining projects in more than 50 government agencies. The granddaddy of them all originated inside an elite Defense Department research agency known as DARPA. The key to fighting terrorism is information. We must be able to detect, classify, identify, and track potential foreign terrorists in a world of noise. This is a DARPA video for TIA, or Total Information Awareness. The concept was to use predictive data mining to detect suspicious patterns of terrorist operations. Human identification at a distance will improve the ability to identify foreign terrorists from a distance. TIA's controversial logo was an all-seeing eye. If one could imagine that, you know, we have an eye in the sky and we could truly get all the transactions, all the things that that group did to conduct that plot, okay, to, to conduct that attack, our thesis is, is that that set of transactions across space, time, and by some number of people will be a unique signature. TIA's mission, which required access to enormous volumes of personal data, triggered controversy in Congress. 
total information awareness program is over the line, it is invading the civil liberties of law-abiding Americans on U.S. soil. Total in 2003, Congress cut off funding for TIA, or so it seemed. Is it true that in that black budget, some of the TIA programs were moved over to the National Security Agency? Uh, all I, I can't, it's classified. I mean, all I can say is that there were elements of our agenda at DARPA that the Congress recognized as being valuable uh, to the point where they said, let's not kill them, let's get them out of DARPA and transition them to another agency within the intelligence community. And, and, and I was the guy that did that. Is it inevitable that we're moving towards a world in which this kind of mass data mining and analysis is, is, is just going to happen? I mean, I think it is happening. There's been explosion of information technology and access to data. I mean, this is what the Internet and all this IT revolution has done. You know, the world is getting digitized. It's ubiquitous, information technology. Access to data is far more easy. And a lot of people see tremendous advantage in being able to tap into that. So we should be having an open discussion about this and then maybe talking about what privacy safeguards are needed in a new world. Bless you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ah, yes, the Total Information Awareness Office, TIA, with that lovely, warm, heartwarming symbol of the all-seeing eye radiating the earth. I'm, I'm sure with a logo like that, how could this be anything but in the best interests of the citizens? Oh, it's such a wonderful, loving program from the government, isn't it? Well, of course it isn't, and we, we know all about that, but in order to find out more about the broader history of illegal, warrantless government surveillance of its own citizens, I recently had the chance to talk to John Young, the founder of Cryptome.org, which of course is well known among certain circles as a, a site that for uh, close to 16 years has been making available information on the internet that the government does not want you to see. Not only the government, but also numerous corporations. They publish a lot of documents that have come from inside these corporations that are classified or otherwise not meant for public consumption and have gotten into legal tangles with Yahoo and Microsoft and, and many others over the years. And and pissed off a lot of very big players and it's very interesting to talk to the owner of a site like that especially because he is also an expert on the history of cryptography and government uh, surveillance of electronic communications so it was with great pleasure that I recently had the chance to ask John Young about the Calia Act and other types of government broader government wiretapping and uh, surveillance issues one level on which that that cover up or limited hangout might be taking place is simply the uh, uh, obscuring the fact that, uh, for example, back in uh, 2004, uh, there was an AT&T whistleblower, to use that term, who uh, revealed the the fact that, uh, which was really just part of Cali Act compliance, that AT&T had the back doors, uh, that the NSA was splitting off uh, the data and copying it wholesale uh, without any type of warrant and without any type of discernment or filtering and just data mining all of the data coming in through that telecommunications hub, uh, NSA just working out of the back door. And, and to me, that's part of the, the larger picture, although I'm sure there are much much larger operations going on that we we really have no access to whatsoever but what what other stories or what other aspects of this do you think might be important to to follow up on well as our current initiative is on this um, what you mentioned is that the the use of commercial firms to spy on the internet uh, and so that uh, we published about some 40 what we call spying guides put out by corporations where they describe either one their privacy policies that always has an exception for complying with law enforcement requests, or what they call third parties that are unidentified. And under CALEO that you mentioned, they have to provide user data to law enforcement and these other uh, unidentified parties. And, so they, and they also get paid for this, because CALEO, as you may recall, set up a very large fund. First initially it was $500 million, and it subsequently sub, uh, added to, to pay these corporations for providing the service, so they now use it as a moneymaker. However, they freely admit they don't want their users to know this because it would, as they say, ruin our reputation in some of the so-called leaked documents. So they classify them as either copyrighted or confidential and withhold them from the public, and they use privacy policy as a cover for this. And so we now publish these firms' privacy policy as a clue 
that they're deceiving you and point out where within that policy the deception is taking place. And um, it is there is no place to on the internet to escape being spied on. So WikiLeaks can be tracked very easily, as can their contributors. And we've always told our users that it's, it's not something we Krypton can control. You know, there are 30 points of access to material coming to us and going from us that you can get access to our activities. And that's just the nature of the internet. It's a very open system, and any open system will be used to spy on the citizenry. Now, I should say, the folks who are doing this don't call it spying. They call it data gathering. But the people who are victims of it should call it what it is. It's called you're spying on us. They don't like that term. They call it data gathering. Right. Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And by the way, so, they sell this stuff to each other, too. So Microsoft gets it from Google. Google uh, sells it to Cisco. Cisco sells it to ATT. Uh, and so it's a pretty thorough um, uh, system of exchanging information because it's a lucrative market. Then, of course, that's to advertisers, and that gets some attention. But that um, 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 advertisers, you know, of course, are a sleazy group, which we all love because they pay us. Uh, is that? But the real uh, hazard of this exchange of user data is that they can refine their systems to do more of it without us knowing. And so they swap techniques almost as though the uh, you know the Baptists were swapping information with a Methodist or whatever. Just how do you do it? What what's working better? Let's 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 share our tips. So the spies exchange spying information under guise of fighting each other, and so these corporations, in, under guise of competing with each other, share information on what users are up to. And of course, they sell it to governments, and governments share this stuff. So. We find it fascinating to try to figure out how to do this now because we're not helpless in all this. You, too, can work back through this information, as we've been able to do, and see where it's coming from and what it's used for because these these large organizations can't control their own organization. <laughs> you know, the damn spreak a leak, back to that cliche. <laughs> Some aggrieved right. employee decides, I'm going to get back at so-and-so. And so we open information sites and get the benefit of that. John Young of Cryptome.org. Now, as always with this podcast, we run into the problem of there simply not being enough time to really even begin scratching the surface of documenting the various programs that are going ongoing and continuing to come to light in this regard. And there's so much, so much more that needs to be talked about in this manner. But as always, I'll leave you to continue with the research and hopefully some of the details that we've uncovered in this episode of the podcast slash vodcast have helped you with that. So as always, I encourage you to check out the documentation list for today's episode at CorbettReport.com to begin finding some of the sources and and researching it for yourself. And for the YouTube video viewers, I'll put a link to that documentation list in the video information bar so you can click directly to go directly to the homepage. But uh, we'll have to end it there, unfortunately. And uh, as always, I put the ball in your court to begin not only researching this, but also, of course, getting this information out to others as it's so vital to inform other people about what's really going on and the things that the, uh, the corporate media and the foundation media and the establishment media of all sorts are not going to tell you about what's going on behind the curtain. So... As always, you can begin doing this for yourself, and if you enjoy this YouTube video or MP3, please spread the link around to others. And also, I will be writing an article with an overview of the information presented in this episode that will hopefully be going up on the website tomorrow, April 25th, 2010, so please stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for that. That's it for today. Thank you very much for joining me for this week's edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for episode 130 of The Corbett Report podcast, Wither Europe. <laughs>